Welcome to the Purposeful Planning Podcast, where you'll gain tangible, practical suggestions to help you transform and elevate your practice. Our content is for both seasoned professionals working with complex family systems and those just entering the field. These podcasts will also be valuable for family leaders who are dedicated to helping individual family members find their pathway to flourishing lives and strengthening the relational fabric of the family. Welcome and thank you for joining us. And now your host. Like to welcome you today to another purposeful planning podcast. This is John A. Warnick, um, and today's podcast is titled "Which Form Should Your Content Take?" And we have some marvelous uh, human beings, experts in the area of um, publishing and writing. Uh, Dave Getz, who is a co-founder of Journey Sixty Six and the president of CZ Strategy, and Melissa Parks, the his co-founder of Journey 66, and who is the managing editor of social media at CZ Strategy. And they, they have been of incredible help to several um, members of the Purposeful Planning Institute, including myself, um, and they're responsible for some books that are out there that you already know of. And another book that I know will be coming out um, shortly. And and I can report to them and to you, I am bound and determined now that I'm back from our travel and from my recuperation to really get serious about finishing the book project that I started with them earlier this year and made incredible progress thanks to their coaching uh in the first five months of this year so dave and melissa welcome and i um i think we're we're really this community is primed to um, benefit from the services you offer and to learn from you Uh, we seem to be awash in blogs white papers books and other forms of of content why should uh, a thought leader why should a member of the purposeful planning institute consider investing time to publish his or her own ideas that's such a great question and thanks for the warm introduction it's so great to be here with you today john I think the question that immediately arises with that question is, how are you going to create trust with your target audience, with the people whom you want to serve? Because as you said, it's such a cluttered space, right? There are so many pieces of content out there. There are so many marketing strategies. And when was the last time you actually picked up a piece of direct mail and said, you know, I want to use this person um, to help me solve my problem? That's just not how it works. You typically gain a customer or a client when there's trust, and that typically happens through referral. So in the absence of a referral, how are you going to create trust? And one of the best ways that you can create trust is through content. And we're not talking about content for the sake of content of just publishing something randomly, but we think of content of how can you serve your ideal audience? We think of it in terms of being a servant author. How can you serve those who you want to reach? What are their problems and what do you have uniquely that you, you can use, that you can share to help them solve their problems? 
I think that's the only way that can cut through the noise. I love that servant author. Um, I do too. Because it, um, we, in fact, we stole that idea from someone we talked to uh, not long ago who, who uh, is a marketer. And, and, and it just really helped, especially for the audience of PPI. So my, my guess is that the majority tend to be smaller practices, smaller coaching organizations, smaller consultants. So how do you, as Melissa said, how do you tell your story in a way that serves an audience? And and I'll say one more thing, and then I'll uh, bounce it back to Melissa. But uh, Seth Godin, who's that great marketer, came up with this idea of the minimum, minimal viable audience. So the mass market, this idea of of creating a book or creating a blog that goes, you know, we, we always think about the viral, the big stuff, but typically people who are successful write for a minimum or minimal viable audience, a small group of people. And so every practice, every law practice, every consultant typically has a small group of people that they can write to or the families that they can write to. And so, um, so as you think about all the noise, there is a lot of noise out there, but there, there's a need for your voice if you have that servant mentality. I love that servant author, servant thought leader um, idea. And I think it's very apropos that, that you've picked up on that and you're running with that. So many leaders aspire to, to write a book um but how how should they go about identifying which ideas are worthy of an entire book because they may have tons of ideas but are they all worthy of of really going into a book let me step back and propose a couple of other questions and that is before you even determine if you have an idea I think you should be asking the question, do I have the energy to commit to writing a book? Because it's going to take a good year to two years of your life, including the marketing of the book. So before you even think about, do I have an idea? You need to be really honest with yourself and say, do I have the capacity, the wherewithal, the determination and the focus to actually commit to writing this book? And the second question is, Am I passionate about this? Because passion can help you overcome a lot of obstacles and a lot of um, a lot of ways that your life is interrupted by the writing of the book. If you're passionate, you're willing to put aside maybe some family functions or some of your favorite activities in order to get this book read because you have a purpose greater than yourself. So I would start by asking those two questions. Then when you have multiple ideas, that's a very normal place to be when you're first thinking about writing a book. Um, but the thing is, is that you probably have topics and not ideas. And so Dave and I like to get really nuanced in in the differentiation between a topic and an idea. And Dave, I don't know if you want to take it from here. I can continue talking, but you'd probably say it better. So I'll let you jump I don't in. know <laughs> if I can say it better. I don't think I can. We just... One of the things that we work on when we work with authors is to really focus and spend some hard hard time on what is the thesis of your book. And a thesis is the idea that governs your book. And as Melissa said so well, it is not a topic. For example, in this space that we're in, succession is one of those general, it's a topic, or family conflict is a topic, or 
even the topic of quote next gen and and preparing them all those are topics but they're not they're not book ideas right and so when you're in a really cluttered space with lots and lots of ideas and books and people then you need an idea that is very very specific and nuanced so we like to say that an idea has two components to it and the first one is called the subject and this is just a exercise that we do the question is what what am i writing about and that's the topic so for me let's say i was going to write a book on fly fishing and it's about you know fishing the yellowstone in the fall so that's the general topic but that's not an idea for a book right that's just so if i say well i'm going to write a book on fly fishing in the fall in yellowstone it that's a that would be you could put 900 books uh typical so that's that that's not an idea so the second part to the idea there's the subject which is um the topic the topic but then the second piece is the compliment what am i going to say about my topic what am i going to say specifically what am i going to say that's uniquely my voice what is my particular angle on this topic and you put those two together and then you you have a thesis or an idea so um it's really important on the front end of thinking about writing a book that you spend some time on the idea because that is the headwaters of your project and if you're too general with your idea initially your book is going to go south meaning it will never get written because um you'll you'll be all over the map it, and it's crazy to think this but the more narrow your idea the more deep it will be and more rich it will be for your audience. Dave, can you give an example of what the compliment would be for your fly fishing in the Yellowstone in the fall? Oh, what would the compliment be? That's a good be? idea. So if my topic is generally I'm fly you know I'm going to write a book on fly fishing the Yellowstone River in Yellowstone National Park in the fall. So there could be a bunch of different books but what I'm going to say about it I'm going to talk specifically about when to fish in the Yellowstone in the fall and it's always after the first big snow. Why is that? Because the browns are triggered they begin their move up river and they start to move up the streams and so you start to get really good brown trout fishing and they start to hit on streamers. So my point my thesis might be um the the whole book which is not a whole book by the way it's probably a blog post uh and by the way that's the that's the other point here is that most ideas are not big enough for a book and that that's that's a whole other topic but so for example my thesis might be the best time to fly fish yellowstone is after october 15th because there's been a snowfall and it will trigger the browns to run up the river right that's a full idea so um the point simply is whatever topic you want to talk about you have to go narrow and deep you cannot go general because those books have all been written i would want to take a step back to what you said that most ideas are fit better for like a podcast episode or a blog post or even a white paper there are very few ideas that can sustain 40 to 50,000 words i know john you're working on a book and you know just how difficult that is to sustain the interest of a reader for that long and to say something fresh within each chapter or each section within each chapter it's a herculean task and if you are not if you don't have a lot of content to work with if you don't have a lot of content to support your idea then chances are you have something much smaller and you maybe an ebook 
um, something specifically designed as a PDF or a series of blog posts, but you don't have to jump in with uh, with a book. And I think that's what we're here today to say is if you don't have a book in you, there are other ways to publish your content. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And coming back to this idea that that really is the the kind of the fuel that will carry you through that year to two year uh, commitment to writing a book. Uh, I I'm just going to say when Dave talks about fly fishing, and the Yellowstone River after October 15th in Yellowstone National Park. Dave has a passion for this. Um, <laughs> this is just a little bit of a, of a personal note, but Dave is an avid fly fisher. He's an expert. He's a podcaster. His podcast is known as Two Guys in a River, and he's written not just one book, but two books on fly fishing, The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists, and life is short, catch more fish. So Dave, there, that passion has shown up for Dave and, and carried him through completing two books. Um, Melissa, I'm going to say more about you a little bit later, but <laughs> I wanted to put that plug in for, for, for Dave because it fit with this thesis or idea that he just developed um, to help us understand the importance of, of, identifying what is the idea but melissa could you go a little bit for, further i think now that we've made this point not all ideas uh, may justify um publishing a book what are some of the other formats or alternatives that people can use to express their ideas that may not be book worthy so I actually love the word publish. And if you go to its etymology, publish means to make public, to make your ideas public. And it's such a simple idea that I think really empowers thought leaders to see publishing as so much larger than just books. When you post um, a social media post, say on Facebook or LinkedIn, that is publishing. That is making your ideas known to the world. And so really there are, as we mentioned at the beginning, myriad ways of making your ideas public and known um, to the world. And it's as simple as a social media post or maybe a short form video. Lots of people are really successful doing video series where they're thinking as a servant author and coming up with topics that can serve their audience. So they think, what is a question that my audience has and how can I answer that in 30 seconds to a minute? And so people are immensely successful doing that in this world where video reigns as supreme. Of course, there's blogging. Blogging, I know there's a lot of competition, but when you instrument your blogs for SEO and you get really specific in that title, thinking like your um, your audience and the questions that they want to ask, suddenly you're going to have this reach because people are going to be searching and you're going to have an answer for them. So those are some of the traditional um, ways that you can publish your work. Of course, there's there's YouTube. You can do videos on YouTube. You can do curriculum. You can do um, you can do a weekly newsletter through Substack. We have people whom we worked with that use Substack as a way to communicate with with their audience. Um, there are eBooks, and I'm not talking about an eBook that you do of your actual published book. I'm talking about an eBook that's usually pretty short, but it has many chapters. You, you usually create it as a PDF and you can sell that or you can make it a downloadable where you're collecting people's data. 
there's really no shortage of ways to to get your ideas out in the world. And really, there's probably going to be some overlap in the the different ways that you'd make your words public. So, for instance, um, we work with people who create videos, maybe like a two minute video. And we post it on the website, or like in the blog or resources area. But you want to let people know um, who don't maybe follow your website regularly or who aren't searching for you, let them know about that. So you go and talk about it on LinkedIn. And suddenly you have this kind of dynamic relationship between the content that you're producing on your blog and also the content that you're creating on LinkedIn. And there's some there's some real energy synergy between the two. Dave, what am I missing? I think the only other thing, a lot of people are doing online courses. And so sometimes people will create a book and then they will use uh, QR codes to jump them to certain places in the online course. Um, uh, so online courses have really accelerated over the last 10 years, probably. So I think I think the, the way to think about it is you have these ideas and what is the best format for me, given who I am? So there's some people who are writers and or they want to become writers and they're just really determined to learn how to write. That's that's then I would say that blogging is really important. And then ultimately you may want to write a book. Other people may say, you know what, I'm better on the fly, like in video. I can, yes, I need a script, but I'm just really really good on and some people are that and so video might be the better format so i think everyone is going to be a little bit different and i think whatever the format if you're passionate about it and your ideas are crisp i think it will serve as back to our theme it will serve your audience and they will consume it and they will hopefully refer it and of course we're looking at engagement on all of these content activities um you want people to engage with your content. And if you're thinking about as a servant author, you're going to do that more likely. And so engagement is somebody who talks about an article that you read with a friend or, or passes it along, or even somebody who leaves a real nice comment on something that you wrote on even a LinkedIn post and says, that really got me thinking, or this reminds me of that, that's engagement. And that is showing that you are influencing your audience. I love this thought that and I'm going to call them servant thought leaders because I think that uh, as we talk about broadening the the platforms or the formats that the idea could emerge in that uh, because not all of them are published in the traditional sense, um, maybe, for instance, a podcaster isn't considered an author, even though really they are publishing yeah. an idea Absolutely. in in that kind of realm of podcasts but we could call them servant thought leaders and this is where i'm going to give a plug to melissa i think you just heard it she really is a a marketing guru um cz strategies is a strategic marketing agency and Melissa's an Instagram expert. I think she knows an awful lot about uh, the ins and outs of social media and is is you're being extremely helpful, not just in publishing books, but in helping individuals identify um, the format that's appropriate for them. So we've talked just a little bit about it, but Melissa, do you have any specific recommendations or Dave on how uh, a servant uh, thought leader 
might determine which of these formats is best for their idea? Absolutely. I think it really goes back to, I think Dave mentioned this already, is what do you enjoy? And really, where is where is your audience? I think those two things go in tandem. And so for me, I'll give my personal story. I joined Instagram probably about seven years ago, simply because in my side hustle, I sell vintage and do some design work and styling for magazines. And that's where a lot of my peers were. And at that time, I was really wanting to grow my um, my vintage business and also get some experience writing in the online world. And so I'm like, how do I get to those people? How do I make those connections? And so it was through Instagram because that's where they were. And then I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed creating imagery because that, of course, Instagram, it's very visual. It's, it's picture first, word second, and I'm a visual person. So I really enjoyed that. Now, Dave, I don't know if he probably isn't quite the same. So he did podcasting because as you know, he's a great speaker and he asks great questions and he's just, he's wonderful in that arena. And so I think that you go first with what you're passionate about and also where's your audience? Where can you reach that target audience? And so for me, Instagram was a good place. That's not to say that that's the only place my audience was, but it, it's a real rich field from which to harvest some um, of my audience. So I, what would you add to that, Dave? No, you're so modest. But so Melissa has built a large Instagram following. I think you're what over 30, 35,000 from zero. And, and because of that, she, she was invited to have her home photographed by country living magazine. So she didn't know anybody. And then a few years later, they invited her to have her home, uh, um, uh, photograph be part of part of it. Was it a cover story? Oh, yeah, it was a cover. Yeah. Story. So the point simply here is, is that you start small, you start where you're at, and you serve that audience and you learn that audience. What is it that that allows them to? So if you're going to just talk about yourself, by the way, um, that's not social media. And it's back to our servant author piece, servant social media person serving your audience. I think that's what Melissa has done really well with um, with, you know, she she gives a piece of herself and she'll post like a flower arrangement or something she purchased from a from a vintage shop. But then she asks questions. She gets people to engage. I mean, I've seen posts where she's had 150 people uh, respond to a post, which is just enormous. And, you know, you you're touching the hem of the garment in a sense when when people engage you and they respond to you. So the point here simply is you with with social media we're we're kind of dipping into the social media and how do you build your platform here but it's critical that you pick one really it's hard to do all of them well you can't do tiktok you can't do linkedin you've got twitter you've got snapchat you've got facebook and so you can't do it all so you pick one and you pick the one where most of your audience is at and then you go deep with them so dave that that leads me to this this question um and i'm i'm just I, I want you to know i'm dedicated to finishing my book in case you were wondering so this question doesn't apply to me in my current uh circumstance maybe in the future it will but how does um a a thought leader um make the decision approach the decision they they've been committed 
to publishing in the traditional book format, but how how do they kind of bring themselves around and recognize the signs that might suggest you should shift strategies and consider one of these alternative formats? I will start out by saying I, I think one thing that we often say to our writers, aspiring authors, is are you looking for this book to make you rich and famous? And if that's your motivation, then we would say, don't write that book. Why don't you do something else with your free time? Because most books sell about 1,000 copies over a three-year period, and that's considered successful in this world where books are self-published and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of books published every year. So I think you really have to get in touch with your motivation. Why are you writing this book? And if your motivation is one, to serve an audience, and two, I think people want to use it to build to build their reach. They want to extend their reach with the book. And I think that that's an absolute valid reason to write a book. But I think you also have to realize that that takes time and that takes building the platform that comes along with writing the book. So you've got to be doing some of these other publishing activities that we've been mentioning while you're writing a book, because your book has to go out into the world and be consumed by somebody. If you don't have an audience, it's not going to be consumed because authors are their own marketers. So I want to just say that caveat in advance, just check your motivations, um, make sure that you're not intending to become a bestseller or rich and then just realize that it's going to take a lot of work and time on your part but there's some other things that i think you can challenge yourself with as well and i'll let you speak to that dave john you raised such a good point i think there um so there when you say traditionally some people when they say there are traditional uh publishers let's say like in our space here wiley would be one of the traditional publishers Wiley probably takes, you know, they maybe take, I don't know, maybe 10 books a quarter. I don't know that they do that many, but maybe 40 books a year, that might be a lot for them. So in that instance, if you wanted to to get published there, you would have to find an editor who works there. About 80% of books today are, are sold through an agent. About 20% people go direct to the publisher. They have a referral. And that's really the best way to get your book in front of a of a, of a book editor. And so when they when they review your book, they're really looking for two things. Number one is if we if we if we buy this book, in other words, we make the decision to publish it, will we be able to sell enough copies to make money on this book? It's so existential. And in this sense, traditional publishers are bankers. That's what they are. They don't take risks. They they are bankers. So they're looking when they look at you, they're saying, can can we guarantee 5,000 books? Or we've had publishers in the Wiley space that we've helped land a contract who sold 5,000 books. And when they went back to Wiley and they had a, a, a clause in the contract about uh, first uh, write a refusal for the next book and they went with to them for the next book, they said, no, you didn't sell enough of those copies for that next book. And then there are people, you know, I sold in with my book, Death by Suburb, almost 30,000 copies, you know, but it was with a big publisher. And when they, when I went back for the first writer refusal, I said, hey, you want my second book? They said, you know, you didn't really sell enough copies <laughs> for that next book, right? But most books are not going to sell that. They're going to sell 300 in the first year 
and a thousand in that three-year period. Again, those are blunt metrics. So the point is, there the old world was that there are these traditional publishers that are gatekeepers, right? That's what they are. They're gatekeepers, and only a few can pass through the gate, and everybody else are also wins. But what has happened over the last twenty years is the advent of independent publishers. And so, um, which, you know, Journey 66, we are an independent publisher. One of the things we are, our mission is to lift up the voices that people like Wiley and institutions like Wiley would never publish. And so that's a, it's a different model for independent publishers. So um, it's uh, the, the, the actual author pays to have the book published. It's not self-publishing where you do it yourself, but you turn it over to a professional firm and so, um, so if you don't, if you if you make a pitch to let's say Wiley or it used to be, I don't know if you remember John A. There was, uh, I remember Josie Bass. The Josie yes, Bass. yes, they were yeah. a big academic publisher. Yeah, they were, and they they don't exist anymore. They got rolled up into uh, another institution. But there's fewer and fewer traditional publishers because the margins are are so thin on on book publishing. So there's been the rise, corresponding rise of independent publishers, which produce just a high quality, just as good a quality. But here's the point. If you publish, and we've, we've seen this with our authors, some of whom have published with Wiley, some of whom have gone with independent publishers, you have the same problem. It doesn't matter who publishes your book. The, the problem is who's going to buy your book. And, you know, if, and a traditional publisher is not going to help you with that. So we had a client uh, several years ago that was published with a major publisher and hired a PR firm out of New York, spent 30 or 40 grand and did not move the needle at all. At all. Like, I mean, the first few months, it, it was it was it was stunning, actually, how few books they sold. It's because it's hard work. Right. And and often traditional PR agencies really don't understand how books are sold. So um, so the point is, if you are an author and you want to publish a book and you have a really great idea and you let's say you make a pitch to one of these traditional publishers or that you can't even get a hearing with them. a lot of today's world, you can't even get a hearing with them. Um because unless you can say, well, I can sell 10,000 copies, you know, they won't, you know, they, you have to, you can't guarantee it, but they want us, they do math on all this. There's a little algorithm that they put together and they say, oh, no, this person, it, it's not enough for us. But there's just this whole other world of independent publishers and a lot of books and independent publishers actually do as well or better than even those traditionally published. So don't give up on that. So that would be my um if you're committed to writing a book and you feel like you've got a really good idea and yet you feel like you've gotten rejected along the way, don't give up on that. I, I, I would just put exclamation points after that, Dave. And I, I, I want to say to our listeners, um, the candor, the frankness, the, the metrics that Dave just kind of recited. And it, it could sound discouraging to someone that has a great idea uh, let me just make a suggestion, and that is Dave and Melissa are open to coaching thought leaders and authors and helping us make decisions about what is the appropriate format. And I'd like to close this with a final question. Um, Melissa, I'm going to direct it to you. you you've, I heard you talk about uh, the importance of building a platform as you approach 
publishing. What does that really mean? And what what are the benefits that that platform can lead to? Absolutely. And it's it's let me just say it again. It's difficult to do both and right. It's difficult to write a book and also tend to building a platform. I mean, I work on my platform daily, but I'm not writing a book right now. So it's easy to commit to one or the other. So to do them in tandem takes an extra amount of effort. And you just have to tell yourself, I'm going to commit to this because as we've been saying over and over again, book publishers aren't going to market your book. Independent publishers aren't going to market and sell your book. You're going to sell your book. So how are you going to sell your book? You put it up on on Instagram, you put it up on Amazon. How are people going to find your book if not if you're they're not referred to it? And I have lots of friends who have written books over the past few years, and they're incredibly successful getting people to purchase their books because they built an online following and they have this the social network of people who repost about the book. And suddenly there's all this energy around the book because it's not just that you're yourself going to your audience, it's yourself going to this audience plus their audience. And you can just imagine how that spreads out. It has this semi-viral effect. And that's how you get people to read a book. It's through recommendations of other people who have trust with their audience. So you have trust with your audience. People from that audience have trust with their audience. And if you can create kind of this ripple effect, suddenly your book is going to have so much reach. So the key is really when you're building a platform to really nurture the relationships with the people who you have within this little pond of yours, right? People have come to your website and signed up for your email list and say, I want to hear from you regularly. When you write something new on your blog, let me know because I love what you're doing. Or those people who on LinkedIn comment regularly on what you're posting. Um, that's all part of building a network. And of course, on we could do a whole podcast just on, on LinkedIn and how you create community on LinkedIn and being generous with other people and 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 um, sharing what other people are doing and being other people's champions that goes so far and then creating a reciprocating effect when it's your turn to put something out into the world. But there's nothing worse than having nobody on that date of publication to start trumpeting the work that you've done. So it's so critical to begin building those trusting relationships as early as possible, because they're going to be the people who help you spread the word about your book. And how you do that is very simple. So you set some goals, like for, let's say you start today, let's say you're going to publish a book in six months. I have 10 people on my email list. It's my mom, it's my uncle and my three sisters and five other people, right? You have 10 people. So, um, So you might say, well, I would like to have 150 by the end of that six months. The email list is still the single biggest driver indicator. If you go to a publishing house, traditional public house, and they're weighing your book, they're looking at you and some other author. And they say, hey, John A., you've got, gosh, you've got 5,000 people on your email list. And Dave, he has maybe 1,000 people on his email list. Who are they going to select? They're going to select you every time. It doesn't matter how great my idea is because they know that an, uh, an email list that's engaged, right? You've been sending out content, fresh content regularly. They are going to choose you every time. So that's a good example of one metric on, and how do you do that? How do you build that? People that will actually opt in and subscribe 
um, I think you do have to start publishing regularly and and that and start doing that at least a year in advance uh, of when your book comes out. And again, just to close this out, it really goes back again to being the servant thought leader. And I, I get a lot of energy around that idea because when I start to think about serving my audience and I know who my audience is, and I think that that's something that you most of your thought leaders are very clear on. They know what the problems are of their audience. When you start to think about their problems and your unique approach to helping them solve that, there's a lot of energy around that. You can create a ton of content. You can create um, an editorial grid when we actually have a downloadable to help your audience begin to do that. Well, I, uh, You've inspired me. You've informed me. And I know we've done the same for our listeners today. Thank you for a wonderful podcast. It's just been awesome. Thank you for having us. We love talking with you, John. We're a big fan of yours, and we can't wait to see your book come out. Yeah, looking forward to thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's program. And if you are a member of the Purposeful Planning Institute, I want to invite you to come post in the community forum and share your key takeaways from today's conversation. And if you're not a member yet, here's your invitation to join us and be part of our community and access the network, resources, and tools that you need to transform your client relationships and your practice. And don't forget to use promo code PURPOSEFUL to receive a 10% discount on a membership. Learn more at PurposefulPlanningInstitute.com. Mm-hmm.